0: and this particular series on on holiness. And so um, I have uh, a privilege to be able to do so and kind of carry on from week to week and carry on the thought and the theme that we're going through in this particular series. And so I'm going to continue on with that um, today. And uh, if you may recall that uh, a couple of weeks ago when I started, we looked at some of not all, because it's a pretty exhaustive topic, but we look at some of the controversy and confusion that surrounds the doctrine of holiness um, and its practice, and how it's practically applied to the Christian life. And so again, there's various camps and emphases that are made, and distinctions, and and the, the list goes on. And so, um, and sometimes, uh, like I said, it creates confusion. And so I wanted to take us through the doctrine of holiness in Scripture and, um, and examine it more closely and thoroughly to establish what I believe the Scriptures are teaching us in relation to these particular truths. Because there's much truth that surrounds the doctrine. It's not like this, it's just you don't overemphasise one part to the exclusion of the other because then you will run into error. And uh, we've seen that many a times. And so, it's all about balance. It's all about context. It's all about uh, uh, understanding the, uh, the the various truths that surround the doctrine to make it complete and whole, and and, and have a proper application of it to our lives. Last week, we looked at, uh, in, you know, so that was more of an introduction. Then last week, we looked at the first aspect, which dealt with. Um, well, if we're going to talk about holiness in relation to the Christian, you have to start with the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. And so that's what we did. We, we went through uh, some aspects and there, and we established scripturally the fact that God is holy. Amen. And uh, the issue of his holiness is that he is separate now because sin, men, is tainted by sin. And sin entered the world and death came in and all of that has brought about a fracture and a separation. Spiritual death, physical death and all of the things that we understand. And so man is sinful by nature and God is holy. And that has to be clearly established and so God is separate from sinners. Man is, uh, uh, as a result of that, he stands condemned before a holy God. He is excluded from the presence of God. That's what the Garden of Eden teaches us. That's why God had to remove them and put a flaming sword there. They're destined to eternal damnation. And as a result of that, they cannot save themselves. They cannot. Any uh, attempts uh, to establish our own righteousness, as the Bible teaches us, is of utter futility. Bears no significance whatsoever. It doesn't even begin to touch upon the righteousness and holiness of God. And so there's nothing man can do to save himself. He can't be justified by the law. We looked at this and touched upon this as well. It will be reiterated throughout the series. But you can't live according to law and somehow think that you're going to establish your own righteousness and somehow reach a point of acceptance to God where God's going to say, well, now you're qualified. No, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. None. And so, man can do nothing for himself. All efforts are useless and futile. And so, really, when you consider that, it leaves a bit of a pretty bleak position, doesn't it? It leaves men in a pretty bleak condition, and that we have we have sinned against God. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And so, there's a dark picture that is painted in the Scripture. There is it is a sad reality you want to call it that that's why Isaiah when he as we looked at last week in the text when he when he was confronted with and in the presence of the holiness of God his first reaction and response was woe is me woe is me he saw in the holiness of God he saw something of himself and he saw his own uncleanness and his own uh, iniquity and sin and so that's the condition but you may recall last week, and I highlight this, because we did point out, we didn't dwell on it, but we just made the point that, that God sent the seraphim to get life coal from the altar. And he took it in the tongs and he put it onto the, onto, uh, the lips of Isaiah and uh, his mouth. And his, uh, the Bible says that his iniquity was cleansed, that his iniquity, his sin was purged. And there was a transference of the holiness of God to Isaiah in that moment. And that captures the essence as you'll see. There's a picture there. There's a, a type of the gospel and what Christ and what God has done and uh, for us who sit here today and wants to do for all and that he desires them to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so the issue of the transference of God's Righteousness, his holiness, is something that we see in Isaiah. something that lies at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the work of God in redemption and salvation, we're seeing something of this impartation. We're seeing something of this transference, of something of who God is, deposited and imputed to man. And so, like I said, really, it's, it's the gospel itself. And so I'm going to go... We're going to cover some aspects in the scripture really just are central to the gospel message that makes it such good news. You know, you can't have good news if you don't have the bad news. And so the bad news is, is that we're all sin, fall short of the glory of God, where there is a wickedness. I know like people like to think of mankind more highly, you know, like we're good. Well, just because we can do good works doesn't mean that we're good. There's none good. Amen. So the scripture says... Not one, none. (laughs) That rules it out, okay? But people like to talk about mankind that they're inherently good. No, mankind is inherently evil, inherently nature. Yes, we have the capacity to do good in terms of good things, but when it comes to God and the holiness of God, it doesn't even come into the equation. And so that's why we refer to Jesus as our saviour this morning. Because he is the one that saves. We can't save ourselves. He is our saviour. He's the one that has saved us from our sins. From ourselves. From eternal condemnation and damnation. And eternal judgement and of these things that we find in the scripture. And Jesus himself was separate from sinners, wasn't he? I mean, you're talking about the nature of his birth just tells us that. He was born of a virgin. He wasn't born of the same, of Adam, like we are. So he's not inherently has this condition of sinful nature. Though he was tempted in all things, but without sin. And so here you have, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, the scripture tells us something about Christ, and it says that it's the only time it's used, and it refers to the spirit of holiness. In Romans, chapter 1, actually, verse... um, uh, seven, I think it is. No, no, no verse uh, four, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead, declared to be the Son of God, and there we see the Spirit of holiness, because Jesus lived a holy and perfect life. He was holy in the most purest. And most uh, f- uh, uh, ideal aspect of the word is its found and taught and revealed in the Scripture. We see that Jesus was the perfect, the spotless, the unblemished Lamb of God. Who according to the Scripture, was to take away the sin of the world. And in doing so, not only do we have forgiveness of sin. But we have an impartation or imputation of the righteousness of God. And as the scripture will see, will see, the holiness of God this morning. And we'll define that. Well, what does that mean? So let's start with our text. I want to read from Romans 3, familiar portion, verse 21. So the Bible says that. Now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and by the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that, had, that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be the, the, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so here it has. We've been looking at holiness and we've established that by, by the use of law, you cannot be justified before God. And also even we've touched upon the fact that even in the Christian life, you can't live amongst, uh, by what, the way of law in terms of external rules. When you begin to implement that as a means to holiness... And as an outward form uh, of externalism, you begin to run into all different problems because the strength of law, uh, the strength of sin is the law. And so though, uh, so that using the law uh, to impose upon outward rule of life um, is, uh, is, is, is problematic and it's uh, something that I've seen and, and we've seen in holiness movements. But putting those things aside, let's just go back to the text here. But now the righteousness of God apart... From the law is revealed, and so the righteousness of God apart from the law. So let's shift now and put aside the law. The law has has done its uh, has worked its work. The Bible says the law is a schoolmaster to what to bring us to Christ. So the law now, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the message of the cross, when it comes to Christ Himself. The law can only chase us so far. It chases us to the cross and to Christ. And once we are found in him, amen, the law has uh, fulfilled its purpose. uh, And ultimately now it cannot condemn us. Though it does, as the scripture says, make us guilty in uh, uh, verse 19. It tells us that all the world may become guilty before God. You know, it's one of the problems with modern Christianity. Just as a side note here. Is that there's a, there's this there's this bent now that everyone sort of we don't want to make people feel bad, like you know somehow people feel guilt that somehow we just got to somehow you know you know automatically make them feel comfortable, you know let God deal with men, let God make them guilty, let them feel their guilt. Yes. Oh my gosh, Pastor Cap, what are you talking about? Don't be quick. Just oh, it's okay. It's okay. Let, let the Holy Spirit do His work. Convict men of sin. Yes. And when He does that, He brings them to Christ and then they get liberated. Yes. Without guilt. Justified. Hallelujah. Amen. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> so, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. It was witnessed by the law and by the prophets. So, okay, well, what? how is it attained then? If it's not by the law, how is it attained? Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There it is, faith. Faith is essential is, is to... Appropriating the righteousness of God here. For the righteousness of God is apart from the law, and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the same means. It's always been the same means. Faith has always been the means. But nevertheless, uh, here we have this emphasis. Now, faith in Jesus Christ. That's how a person is justified. The law justifies no one. The law condemns. But, the, but Christ, amen, is through faith in His sacrifice, through faith in what He has accomplished on Calvary, through His blood that was shed, and his old, uh, the whole plan of redemption that is through His death and burial and resurrection is what establishes us and makes us, as we believe on that work, we are justified before God. That means that we are declared righteous. We are declared innocent. We are being liberated. We are free. We are without guilt. Amen. A few verses, the whole world is to become guilty. And now, a few verses later, in Christ through faith in Christ, you can be absolutely free from guilt. That's right. <laughs> and so... It's simple because the Bible says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace. See, this is, this is what the gospel is. It's the gospel of grace. We're justified freely by His grace. It's a, it's a gift. Salvation is a gift from God, and it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a, the propitiation of the sacrifice of uh, the atonement. As Brother Cole was talking about that word propitiation, is clearly associated with some of the things that he was touching upon today. We're not going to go into that now, but here we see that through grace and through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ and through faith and trusting in Christ's finished work of redemption and what he did when we believe and we call upon the Lord the Bible says we shall be saved. That's the simplicity of Christ. That is the simplicity of the gospel. Now if man is by nature guilty of sin and has a sinful nature, how is it that he can partake of the holiness of God this morning? If man is by nature guilty of sin and has a sinful nature, how can he partake of the spirit of holiness that we are identified with Christ himself, being of the divine nature that he is, God in the flesh? And so we, we said we, 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 are, uh, uh, we must be declared holy. We must be able to be in the presence of God. And we've said from the beginning of this study and I've said it before and I want to lay this foundation clear this morning is we cannot begin to address the issue of holiness in practical living and in the Christian life and and how to live holy according to the, the scriptures and how that's achieved until we first have this foundation fully set in our hearts. It's so important. It's critical. And it has to do with our position in Christ. There's other terms that can be used, but we are in Christ, our union with Christ when we are in Him. And so now that we, when we are born again, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a spiritual dynamic uh, uh, that takes place. And in doing so, the Bible says that the righteousness of God becomes imputed to the believer. Now, I have to deal with the issue of righteousness before we understand holiness, okay? Because when we talk about holiness in and of itself, you can't talk about holiness without first talking about righteousness. Because this is the issue that has to be first set in place. So, if we're going to receive of the righteousness of God, which is what the, the scripture has just told us, by faith in the finished work of Christ at Calvary, by His grace, nothing there of us, right? To all and on her who... Believe, that's what we do. And believing is not a work, okay? Faith is not a work. But it must be you, faith. You've got to trust. You've got to make that choice. God's not going to make it for you. And so in doing so, we are then justified before God. And our position is now that we, are, we will see this, I'll establish this, we are in Christ and we are, have a righteousness that is trans, transferred or imputed to us. And this kind of establishes the basis of that holiness this morning is in Christ. First and foremost, if we're going to talk about holiness and the doctrine of holiness and we talk about the holiness of God and we talk about the holiness of the believer, you must understand your position. Is this we are holy in him we are there is holiness in Christ first and foremost it is something that we receive not something that we achieve okay it's not something that we receive I mean so that we achieve of ourselves but something Christ achieved for us in that he went to the cross and he did all the work He's the one that laid down his life. He's the one that uh, 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 paid and was a propitiation for our sins. He achieved it. We receive it. It's the simplicity of this. And so remember we've touched, I think we touched upon last week when we talked about uh, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men and we looked at the the temple, the tabernacle and the temple and we looked at that veil, that curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, which is where God dwelt, in the Holy of Holies. And men could only enter, high priest could only go in once a year. If he didn't go in according to the pattern and have the blood of the atonement, he would be zapped. And so, here it is, Christ is on the cross. He achieved it. He's on the cross. And he says these words, it is finished. And the Bible says that the veil of the temple was torn, ripped in two. And you know what that means? The the holiness of God. Man is now able to approach God. or, Or even more, God is now able to approach man. Okay? And that's really what this is. And that veil has been torn. And so now there's something about the holiness of God that is accessible. And this is what we see taught in the scriptures. So if we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, there's a familiar portion of scripture there that says these words, that uh, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the transaction. Jesus bore our sin on Calvary. And in doing so, there was a transference. He took our sin and He transferred us unto us the righteousness of God that we have when we are in Him. We are found in Christ. You see, this is, this is wonderful. And so this is really accomplished by what God has done for us. And when, I, when we think about just justification having been imputed and declared righteous before God, having right standing with God, being justified by faith, as the scripture says in I read it this morning. All of these things make for the glorious wonders and truths that surround the gems, that surround the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want to focus us a little bit further on what this all means and represents. You know, Peter, in his epistle, he uses a particular phrase... It's found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And um, I won't read the whole te- uh, scripture there of the, of the verse. But he actually says in chapter 1, verse 4 that, um, well, actually, he says, We've been given exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Think about that for a moment partakers of the divine nature. I want you to ponder that for a moment. Because if God is holy and men are sinful and separated. But then in the gospel we are redeemed, we are restored. We are now, we are in right standing with God. We've been justified by faith through grace. We've appropriated these things. The right, we're, de- we're declared righteous now in the presence of God. And the Bible says we have become partakers of the divine nature. Now we're beginning to touch upon holiness. We've become partakers of the divine nature, something that was totally foreign to us. We were, not, uh, we were of Adam, not of Christ before. And so this is very significant. And so again, this goes back. How do we become partakers of the divine nature? Well, through the gospel, salvation. And two, I want to make an emphasis of this because we've spoken about believing and on all who believe, and that is the simplicity of the gospel. But that has to be in conjunction with this. You must be born again. Okay? Because when one truly believes, and I use that word deliberately, There is a born again experience, that's the whole emphasis. Because if you're going to become a partaker of the divine nature that is holy, and now the veil is torn we have access, then we have, the Bible's clear, we have to be born again. And that's why Jesus taught it. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so there's many, uh, again, John chapter one, uh, verse uh, 12, uh, to those who gave the right to become the children of God. To those who were not born according to the will of men, of the flesh, but those who were born of the will of God or born of God. And so this is important. Because this is the only way that you can become a partaker of the divine nature. Is You have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be born from above. You have to be born of God. And so this is the whole emphasis, because when we were born once of flesh, we were born with Adam's nature. We were born from the seed of Adam. And each of us had a sinful nature. Each of us had committed sin. And so sin can't be in the presence of a holy God. And so we have to be born from above. This is why the emphasis is being born again and this is the emphasis of scripture because what does the bible tell us in 2 Corinthians again chapter 5 verse 17 it says these words if anyone is in Christ there's that phrase again in Christ he is what a new creation not a new creature <laughs> okay a new creation Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And this is now the basis of, according to Peter's words, becoming partakers of the divine nature, because we are born again, born from above, and this is, uh, and we are a new creation. And that is now where we become partakers of the holiness of God, because God is holy. So if we're going to be... Uh, uh, in Him, then we too uh, uh, must be holy. And this is what we will find that Scripture is teaching us. You see, Paul the Apostle Went to great lengths to protect and emphasize this truth, especially when he contended with those Judaizers, those that wanted to impose the law in the book of Galatians as a rule of life. And they were talking about having to keep the law of Moses and the need to be circumcised for the believer. And they wanted to impose certain aspects of the law, and Paul said, Absolutely not. And then he closes his epistle to the Galatians and he makes this point. He says these words, let me read it to you, Galatians 6 verse 15, For in Christ Jesus, again there's the word, in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, it it avails nothing but a new creation. That's what it's about. It's about a new creation. Paul's not interested in the law. He's not interested in the law of Moses. He's not interested in laying any burdens upon the Gentiles to somehow uh, gain acceptance with God. He says this is the only condition. This is the most important factor, is a new creation. And that is what the gospel is. That's what salvation is. That's what when we say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, that is encompassed in the fact that you must be born again. You must be a new creation. Otherwise you cannot be a partaker of the divine nature. See that is a pretty profound thought isn't it? But do you know that that's the foundation of the gospel? I mean Paul would write in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. And he says these words. He talks about the riches of the glory. Of our inheritance in salvation, because of the riches, the glory of our inheritance in Christ Jesus. And you know what he says it is? Christ in you. Think about that for a moment. Christ in you. You see, Christ couldn't be in any of us if this issue of being imputed with the righteousness of God. Through the blood of the cross and through the redemption that's in Christ and the grace of God. Everything, the work of salvation that he has done and that we believe and are born of God. And now all of a sudden we become partakers of the divine nature. And listen to this, Christ in me. Wow. So that's why the Bible teaches us that we are what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple. We are a temple. And so therefore it can only be a holy temple. And it's a temple that has been uh, imputed with the righteousness of God. And partakers of the spirit of holiness. And now we are holy before him positionally in Christ Jesus. I think we did. What a glorious gospel we're talking about here. It's It's phenomenal. When we consider it. It's not just my sins are forgiven. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's, that, that is fundamental to our transgressions being dealt with. But the gospel goes far beyond that. The inheritance is much more than forgiveness. And so, Christ in us. You know, it's interesting because this issue of, of holiness being with Christ in us, being God being separate and us being separate to God. It goes to the heart of why we are to live the way we live, you know, because it's interesting. We won't go into it in detail now, but Paul will write to the Corinthians and he'll tell them that they are to uh, present their spirit and their body as holy to God in the way that they live and conduct themselves. In fact, he's talking specifically about their bodies, not just the spirit, But this is all later. But he says you're doing that. You are required to do that. And commanded to do that on what basis? Because your body and your spirit are God's. And your body and your spirit being one part of the one are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. So if we are holy positionally in Christ, then how much more are we required to live a holy life? And that's what Paul is going to emphasise throughout the Scriptures. But again, how is that achieved? That's important, but we'll get to that in our series. But I'm just, again, throwing these things out. So, like I said before, we've emphasised the issue of the righteousness of God because we have to, in order to understand holiness. See, God is the justifier, the Scripture says here. God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the question I want to put to us this morning is: What is holiness in Christ? What is holiness? We're touching upon it. We're emphasizing and illustrating it. How did we define it? Define it. What is holiness in Christ? So this is important because when we look at the word holiness and we read the Bible, and depending on what translations and so forth that you read, it's interesting to note that the word holy. When it's found in the New Testament, and the way it comes from a same Greek word that we find translated, another, well, the root word of this is, is a Greek word, which is also translated in Scripture as sanctification. So sometimes when we read the Bible, and in fact, when the new, in the Revised Version, where the King James Bible was revised and kind of you know tweaked a little bit to improve it, they uh, they translated the word holiness as sanctification. Because holiness, in principle, is sanctification, or to be sanctified, and this is important for us to understand. But again, uh, when we before we look at anything that's external, before we consider anything that's outward, you must understand the inward f- factor, and the inward dimension. So we're talking about holiness is translated is sanctification. They come from the same Greek word, and so let's look. At this in the scripture for in just a moment, but let me read to you First Corinthians chapter one, verse thirty. So I said to you before, before I read, I said to you before that salvation is God's work, and holiness is God's work. We don't achieve it; it's not something that we can achieve in of our own, through our own effort. It's something that God does. It is this separation. This holiness is, is the initiative that God has taken, and that what God has done. So, in First Corinthians chapter one verse thirty, but of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness. So, we've already looked at righteousness, right? The righteousness of God that's imputed to us, and sanctification, or in other words, and holiness. So He became for us holiness. We're partakers of His holiness. We are sanctified. And so again, when we look at the word sanctification, you may recall we we made the emphasis that in its primary meaning Hebrew and in the Greek, it, it deals with the issue of separation. Separation. And so here we're dealing with the fact that we have been separated unto God. Because God is holy, and we now are partakers of that holiness and the spirit of holiness, and we have now been separated by God, not ourselves. This is not something that we do, this is positional. Now God has placed us and taken us, and He has become unto us our sanctification, our holiness. That's what the scripture is telling us. It's in Christ. And this is why this is critical for us to understand it. It's something that's based on the virtue of grace alone in fact you know we talk to, we use the word saints it's the same Greek word that's being used so when we talk about sanctification saints and holiness that comes from the same Greek word in the, that is uh, being used in to interpret each of these and so it's interesting because according to the Catholic do- do- doctrine what's a saint? someone that worked right <laughs> someone through works has attained and achieved, and uh, sainthood, you know, and so this is totally at odds and undermines the whole biblical doctrine of sanctification and holiness, and what it is to be a saint. Paul would write to the the Romans in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 7, and he says to them, uh, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be, what, saints. I am a saint. The moment I was born again, the moment I became a new creation in Christ Jesus, I was separated to God. I am called to be a saint. And that word sanctification has to deal with separation. It means holy, separated, a most holy thing. And that's what we are, amen. And that's something that God has accomplished, not us. God did that. And he had to do that as part of thus imputing his righteousness and declaring us holy in his presence. He separated us unto himself. So let's look at this a little bit further. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. A couple of scriptures I want to conclude with, so just but Paul would emphasise this, and so in Romans, sorry, Ephesians chapter one. I'm not going to go through it in depth, but I want to just emphasise it. Verse, verse three, he says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's where God's placed us; He separated us, just as He chose us in Him." before the foundation of the world, that we should, what? Be holy and without blame before Him in love. Amen. You see, God chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And so for those that would believe, we were in God's foreknowledge and in His predetermined purpose, not that you would be predetermined to be saved; but in His predetermined purpose of those that would be saved, that they would be declared. God had chosen that this is what's going to happen, and this is uh, uh, that they would uh, be holy and without blame before Him in love. You see that word "be holy and without blame" again. Separated. It's the same come, that "holy" comes from the same Greek word. And without blame, unblemished, spotless, faultless. I mean, that, I mean, we're not, we're, in, you know, let's, let's be honest, we're not that. But in Him we are. Because we are partakers of the divine nature. We are holy in Him. And we have the righteousness of God imputed to us. That's why we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And so, and again, he Paul would write in verse five, having um, predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Him self, according to His good pleasure, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the beloved. He made us accepted in the beloved by what? His grace. That's, right. That's it. Nothing we did. We didn't add one. I owe it to this process. It was all God's work. And he made us holy and without blame before him in love. Something that is unattainable by men, but provided by God. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Colossians chapter 1. Again, it's a re-emphasis of this, but I want to consider it because this is the another spot in the scripture that we find it. And in verse 19, Paul writes, he says these words, For it pleased the Father that in him that is Jesus all the fullness should dwell of the Godhead bodily, the divine nature, the spirit of holiness. And by him to reckon through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross and you Paul's writing and emphasising and you to whom he's writing to the church who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death just stop there Again, in the body of his flesh through death. This is important because this is really... Remember, we've referred to the veil. See, Hebrews gives us a further insight to this. And I just want to read it to you because in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10... I'm going to come back to that. Sorry, but I want to just emphasize this because this is important that we see this. In Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 19... The writer puts it forth here and says these words. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, boldness, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You know, you don't have to come with a timidness. You don't have to come with shame. You don't have to come looking down to the ground. If you confess your sin and you've called upon God, you must understand that He's faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, that's the foundation, by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is His flesh. So the veil is his flesh. So the veil think of the veil of the temple that was ripped in two. This is a picture of his flesh that was the new way, the new and living way that he has opened up for mankind to enter and access the presence of God and the holiness of God through his death and his body that was, was broken for you and for me. And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 22 of Colossians. He says, in the body of his flesh... Through death, that's how he accomplished what's about we're about to read. To present you holy, to present you holy, he did that. And that's why he said it is finished and the veil rent in two because his flesh had had had, had sacri- been sacrificed, had been offered up for sin. And in doing so now, he paved the way for you and I to be presented to God and to be declared holy. And, look at verse 22, and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's phenomenal, church. We deserve to. He just says we were alienated and we were enemies of God by our wicked words. We deserved hell. And yet God, through Christ, through His grace and through the sacrifice, He did all that and through His flesh, having suffered at the cross and, and so forth, He then paved the way for us to be declared holy and presented perfect and blameless in His sight. Thank God. Thank God. That we're talking about the holiness of Christ this morning, and we are in Him, and so when we talk about holiness, you must talk about it first and foremost in this context. If you move, if you if you neglect this as a foundation, you will fail to live according to a life that is pleasing to God and to live a life of holiness. You have to understand this position first. Now, can I read something else? I, to, I rest whether I was going to touch upon this, but I'm going to because it's the next verse. <laughs> but I have to because if I deliberately avoided it, it would be wrong of me. But I—it's there, and so—and I—and I read it, and it says, "If indeed you continue in the faith." Now, this is important. Grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I Paul became a minister. There's no doubt that the Bible is uh, from the onset, the Bible teaches us eternal security. The Bible is clear in our emphasis the, the work of salvation, our position, we've just touched upon it. That's what Paul's emphasising in his writing here, in the previous verses, that they're holy on the merit of Christ. But then he makes this st- statement where he says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now I had to think about this and I've started it and I've prayed over this scripture many times for obvious reasons. And I've read some of the commentators and the commentaries that try and deal with this. And the gymnastics that people uh, go to, I I just, I can't. You must take the scripture at face value. You must just interpret it the way that it is being interpreted. I know you have to, there's context and we want to establish that context. And we must weigh scripture against scripture and so forth. But the clear understanding here is Paul is emphasising if you indeed continue in the faith. And it seems that there's a condition there, that word if. It just kind of throws things out. And so people try and maneuver around it to try and make it say something or mean something that it doesn't appear to be saying. In my study of it, in my simplest terminology and understanding, but you see, it's there. And it's interesting because... Like I said, there's the gymnastics that go with it. And there was one commentator I read, and he, he, he said this. He wanted to try and be honest with the Scripture to one point, but then he went ahead and he, he interpreted this was, These are reputable men. I use their commentaries sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes to, to read up on things. And so obviously dealing with such a topic, I want to see what they've all got to say. And uh, he said that, he says these words. He says, since there are those who cannot accept the simple meaning of the words written here, because it's, if you look at it, it's the most simplest meaning. Attempts are made to circumvent it. And this is what he goes on to say. He says, the Spirit of God has seen fit to put in many of these so-called if passages. So-called if passages. So he's saying if doesn't mean if. It's a so-called. Didn't, in case you didn't pick it up. And this is where I think we have a dishonesty with the text. Because the Spirit, of, he says, The Spirit of God has seen fit to put many of these so-called in-passages in the Word of God in order to challenge all who profess the name of Jesus Christ as to the reality of their profession. Well, that's, there's, a, there's an album of truth to that. I don't discount that. But he says, We would not want to say anything that might dull the sharp edge of these passages. But he just did. <laughs> He just did. I wouldn't want to do anything, but you know those so-called "if" past "if" words. Well, we've got to deal with it in its context. And Paul is writing to the Christians. He's just told them about their eternal security, and he's not seeking to undermine it either. In fact, it's got nothing in what he says. If indeed you continue in the faith, in the definite article, he's not talking about works. He's not talking about um, um, uh, earning your salvation. He's not talking about works and trying to maintain your salvation. It's got nothing to do with what Paul's referring to. He's simply saying that you continue in the faith. And this is really important. Continuing in the faith. Because you can turn this if anyone turns Hebrews deals with this, under um, the sin of unbelief. If anyone turns back, my soul has no pleasure in him. There is something about uh, faith and unbelief, these are the critical issues. It's not whether or not you you know, if I sin, am I going to lose my salvation? That's not the question we should be asking. And that's not what the scripture is implying or saying. He's saying, and I'm just a simple man. If indeed you continue in the faith. And I've read some things from credible uh, Bible uh, commentators that I esteem far greater than myself, mind you. And I just cannot bring myself to, to accept and see some of the things and the gymnastics that they play with this particular scripture. Now I'm, I'm, I say that because if I ignored it, I felt I wouldn't be doing the right thing this morning. But it's there. But it's not there to try and make you insecure. It's not there to try and you know lay a thread. It's there to re-emphasize the fact that in Him we are holy. We have this privileged position of him being in Christ and in him we have a whole inheritance, we have eternal security, we have everything that has been bestowed upon us. We are holy. Holiness is in Christ this morning. And so... I want to make that point and emphasize the holiness of God this morning. I pray that I've been clear enough in my presentation and teaching here. But the foundation of holiness is in Christ. It's through our union with God. The Bible speaks about the fact that we have entered into his rest. You know, when you when you when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are saved and you are that's it. You rest in the finished work of christ that's the problem is that people don't enter into that rest they feel as though they've got to somehow do more achieve more or please god more no christ did it all and you must be appropriate by faith at, the, at that rest that is in christ in the finished work it's the gospel of our salvation i'm holy in him i'm a saint i am saved I have an assurance. I'm righteous. Through the righteousness of Christ, I'm born again. I'm a new creation. And so in light of all of that, I pray that our understanding of holiness in Christ is understood this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just bless your name. We just bless the wonderful and glorious name of Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are a holy God. And when we look at the gospel, we look at Christ and your grace. Lord, everything that you have achieved and provided for and done. And Lord, as we have received, God, you have declared us righteous. You have, Lord, made us to become partakers of the divine nature. We're the temple of your spirit. We are holy. You have separated us unto yourself. We are saints because you have made us so and declared us so. And in doing so, Lord, by your precious blood, through your death, the veil that was torn, the, sh- the, f- the blood, the flesh of Christ, the body of Christ that was was beaten and hung upon Calvary's cross. We thank you, Father, for such a great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.